the Bible is a story. It is the story of God's redemption in our world. This year we have set forth the ambitious goal of taking those 66 books of the Bible and many times, even though we've been in church so many years that we can't kind of put the story together, the pieces together. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, there's 27 in the New Testament, not always in chronological order and the themes are different, and, but it is one big story. And um, it is the story of redemption. And I want you to know on an individual basis uh, that God wants your story to fit into that one big story, his story. And God is the God who redeems. He not only redeems our lives, uh, but he redeems our circumstances. And quite honestly, some of you are passing through circumstances in your life that God needs to redeem. Some of you are individuals who are still in need of redemption. Even as these girls have testified uh, this morning. Two thousand nineteen we have set aside about fifty Sundays to talk about that one big story. And uh, this morning we are crossing from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Amen. Some of you are excited about that. We've spent basically seven months looking at the Old Testament, a very significant foundation to God's story of redemption. You cannot tell the story of the, the New Testament, the New Covenant, without understanding the story of the Old Testament. So thank you for your patience in that. And if you've been waiting for this, today is your day. We cross from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Uh, Paul in Galatians summed it up like this. Because last Sunday we talked about how there's 400 years of silence, prophetic silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But in Galatians 4, Paul states it like this. He said, and when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, the climax to the story of redemption occurs in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We have reached the climax in the life, death, 
and the resurrection of Jesus. And this morning we look at the start of that story. We start in the first of the Gospels, Matthew. We're going to start in Matthew 1.1. And we're going to look, even though it's July, at the birth of Jesus. Um, Y'all knew y'all were in for this. This is going to happen for weeks on end. Oh, I have a picture (laughs) from my trip to the Holy Lands of the church that is on the traditional spot where Jesus was born. It is uh, the church of the nativity. Obviously, if you've read a little bit of the Bible, you know this is in Bethlehem, which is about six or seven miles outside of Jerusalem. It is a massive church. It's really a complex of buildings and churches. Um, and there are, oh, I don't know. There, there are um, mosaic tile floors. There are ornate light fixtures. Amy, one of the things that struck me were those light fixtures. It's like, wow, I wonder if those are really all gold. They're real gold or not. Um, marble columns. There are paintings, elaborate paintings on the walls. It is, I, I don't know the difference between a church and a cathedral, but this place struck me as a cathedral. It has the high vaulted ceiling, just an amazing. And, and quite honestly, what they do is they take you to the spot where Jesus was born, which is, which is a, they believe, a cave where they would have kept the animals, not a wooden structure like we would think of, but a cave underground, and you go underground and you look, Ted and Barbara, at this little cave down there, the traditional spot where Jesus was born. And uh, I thought it was kind of odd that you have this place of Jesus' birth, uh, the simplest of places, almost a birth that occurs in obscurity, in this cave underground, and above it you have this massive, ornate, elaborate cathedral. But then it occurs to me, even though he was born in simplicity and even obscurity, the church represents the majesty of the person that was born in that place. Maybe the most interesting thing about the Church of the Nativity is this next picture I have. Uh, Believe it or not, this is the entrance to that church. We went in this door, we came out that door. Uh, I don't know, it's about four feet tall and a couple feet wide. Um, and I realize, and there's a story behind that. I don't have time for that this morning. But what I realize is that everyone who comes there to the place where the Savior was born must bow by design, by the doorway, you're going to have to bow to come to the place where he was born 
and to the cathedral that is a reflection of his majesty. Uh, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were born under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent him as the Messiah. God sent him as the Savior of the world. But God also sent him as the King of kings. And the spiritual truth this morning is everyone who comes to him must bow to the King, the Savior, and the Messiah. We only find life in him when we surrender, we submit our hearts to him. The first of the Gospels are Matthew. Um, there are sheets on your pews uh, to give you some information. I may not refer much to it today. Uh, but maybe as we start on the New Testament, you need to have a little bit of sense, and it's in that first section there, past the timeline, which you can just look at this morning. We'll talk maybe more about that later. Uh, the New Testament, just like the Old Testament, is divided in books of history, then the writings, then the prophecies. The books of history are first about the life of Jesus, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the history of the early church, which is the book of Acts. In the writings, you have the writings of Paul. He writes more of the New Testament books than anyone else. And first, you have the books that Paul writes to churches, the most significant and the lengthiest, first Romans, first and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And then in the New Testament order, in the books of, of writings, you have Paul's writings to individuals. And so you have 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And then you have the writings of other authors, uh, starting with the longest and going down. And so you have Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then Jude. And then you have the only book of prophecy in the New Testament would be the book of Revelation. Matthew is the first. There's a reason. Matthew's gospel is the first. And Matthew's going to start by talking about the birth of Jesus. Um, and he starts with the genealogy. And there's a reason for that. And in Matthew 1.1, this is the way Matthew begins his gospel uh, the first gospel, the first writings since the Old Testament. So if you flip from Malachi 4 that we left out, off at last week, verse 5, the next verse is Matthew 1.1. And this is the way Matthew begins. And he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus to prove that Jesus is the son of David. This is very significant in Matthew's presentation. In fact, some people might say, well, so why are there four Gospels? Um, well, because that's the way God designed it. No, no, no. No, there's got to be a, a reason for that. There are four Gospels because there are four different witnesses uh, to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and Matthew is one of those. Each of the Gospels has a particular writer with an own, their own experience and their own target audience and their own purpose. And you don't just have one Gospel, you have four Gospels, and sometimes you look and go, oh, Mark tells that a little bit different. John tells that a little bit different. Uh, suppose that there were four of us guys that went on a road trip for about a month and we traveled the United States just for a month and we came back and people said, hey, what did y'all do? Each of us four guys would have our own stories and some of them would overlap but some of them would be different and some of them would be the same story with a little bit different slant because there are different witnesses to that. Matthew is one of those witnesses and he had a specific purpose and part of his purpose from the very beginning was to prove that Jesus is the king of the Jews and to prove that he had to show through the genealogy that he was the son of David. Nine times in the book of Matthew he talks about the son of David. The reason that Matthew's gospel is the first is because his is the one gospel more than the rest of them that reaches back into the Old Testament and says, no, this is the basis for my message. It is what God did in the Old Testament. He reaches back into the Old Testament and shows how the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. Matthew writes his gospel as a Jew. And if you read the gospel accounts, and this is on your sheet, some of about, about Matthew, also known as Levi, the son of Alphaeus. He is a tax collector from the city of Capernaum, which was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. I won't show you a picture of that today. See, I'm showing some restraint. There's only three pictures today for my trip to the Holy Lands, okay? You've already seen two of them. There's one more coming. Uh, Matthew is a Jew who writes to Jews. His gospel has an evangelistic purpose. It is to prove that to the Jews that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And to start that, his first proof or evidence is in those first part of the first 17 verses of Matthew 1. He comes in the lineage of the line of David because the prophecy was that... Uh, the Messiah, the Savior, the King of the Jews would come from the lineage of David. And he shows, and we're not going to read that, but it shows that he is the son of David. If we pick up the story in, in verse 18 of chapter 1, he not only shows that he is the son of David, but he also shows that he is the son of God. He shows his supernatural birth. In chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child, here's the phrase, of the Holy Spirit. 
And yes, it is true that you can trace Joseph's lineage, Mary's lineage, all the way back to King David and beyond that even to Abraham. They are Jews, but they also, within uh, the Jewish family, they fall in the, in the household of King David. But the scripture is also very clear. He was not simply from the line of David. He is God's son. And when you go back to the prophecies, to the time of David and, and Solomon, there will be one who comes. Yes, he, and it, it's kind of a double talk that he will come and he will be in the lineage of David, but God said he will be my son. You go, well, how can that be? How can you be the son of David and the son of God? Because his mother and his surrogate father fall in the line of David, but he has a supernatural birth in that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Joseph and Mary are from, actually, and it's not recorded here in Matthew, it's recorded in Luke. Uh, they are from the town in Galilee named Nazareth, and we're going to talk about that. In Luke 1, an angel appears to Mary to announce that she will be with child and it will be of the Holy Spirit. Here in Matthew's account, it, it talks about Joseph. And so it says in verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make a public her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Notice the phrase, son of David. Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is, here's the phrase, of the Holy Spirit. This is not a natural child. This is a supernatural child. God has implanted this child into Mary, in essence, as a surrogate mother. And he will therefore be called the son of God. It is also interesting to note that I talked about from Malachi to John the Baptist that there is 400 plus years of prophetic silence. There's no word from God. You will see in the story of the birth that there are angels, there are dreams, God even speaks through and leads people through stars, but there is no prophetic word. Dreams, visions, angels, stars but no prophetic word. You'll see that repeatedly through the story. In verse 21, it says, the angel says to Joseph, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, the father of the child has the right to name the child. <laughs> In Old Testament terms, I don't, I'm not saying anything about today, okay? Just back, back. All right, it's all right. In Old Testament times, the father would name the child. Father God said, name him Jesus. The Old Testament name of Joshua, uh, in Hebrew it means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. And he goes on in that verse to say, for he will save his people from their sins. He came to be a savior in the spiritual sense. 
This is very significant as Matthew is presenting his gospel to Jews, and he was presenting his gospel to Jews decades after Jesus had lived. I told you that, that Matthew's gospel has an evangelistic uh, purpose in that he was, he was a Jew writing to Jews to prove that Jesus was the king of the Jews. He was the savior of the world. He was the Messiah that God would send. And the call was that you must believe, you must submit to him, you must believe in him. The problem in Matthew's day and even in Jesus' day was that when Jesus came, he did not fit their expectation of what they were looking for in a savior or a deliverer. They were waiting for the king of the Jews to come. Great anticipation of the Messiah, the King, the Savior who would come. But he was going, in their minds, he was going to deliver them from the power of the Romans, the military, political power that oppressed them. Very significant, and Matthew is making the case here through the words of the angel. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people. And most of the Jews would have gone, yeah, he's going to save us. From their sins. He was to be a spiritual savior. And the reason that Matthew writes to Jews who have not believed is primarily because Jesus did not fit their expectations of what they were looking for in a king, a savior, and a messiah because they wanted deliverance from the Romans. But the second bit of evidence is that Matthew says to his Jewish people, not only does the genealogy prove that he is the son of David, check, but his supernatural birth proves that he is the son of God in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, check. The evidence is coming in that Jesus really is the king of the Jews. The other check mark would be that Jesus' birth fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. Everything that God had said for hundreds if not thousands of years about the one who would be coming, who would be the ultimate deliverer, the Savior. All of those details were fulfilled in the life of Jesus and all the details about his birth were fulfilled in the details of Jesus' birth. And so we have this statement in verse 22 of chapter 1. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Very significant for a Jew, Matthew, a Jew, to write to other Jews this fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Isaiah 7, 14. It is the first time that Matthew says this happened, that it might be fulfilled what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Matthew's gospel quotes the Old Testament by far more than any of the other gospels, 130 times. The Old Testament is quoted 
to show that Jesus fulfilled all of that. And there are numerous of these in Matthew's birth account. He does that because of his Jewish audience. First one, Isaiah 7, 14. Verse 24, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. I want to read chapter 2, and I want you to see that once Matthew has shown through the genealogy that it proves that he is the son of David, that by his supernatural birth it proves that he is the son of God, and that the details of his birth are, are fulfilled in the Old Testament prophecies, he was laying the groundwork to the Jews, this is your king. It may not be what you were expecting, you wanted, you anticipated, this is your king. He is the king of kings. He is the savior of all mankind. He is the Messiah whom God sent. And we see it in the details because in chapter 2, in Matthew's account, you see him represented as the king in his birth. It says in verse 1, now after Jesus was born, we know that from Luke's account of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, <laughs> there's a certain irony of there, because in just a minute, the wise men are going to come and go, hey, uh, we're looking for the new king. Well, boys, that's not real smart when you got Herod, who is the king. This is Herod the Great. He is the first of the Herods that rule. I, I wrote some notes on your, your reference sheet for you. We don't have time to talk about it this morning. But Herod is a massive figure. Uh, he uh, rules appointed by the Romans from 37 uh, B.C. to 4 B.C. That 4 B.C. is going to be very significant. He is a massive builder of cities, ports, military outposts. And we saw many of those in our, in our journeys in the Holy Land. But he is also a man who historically was known for his extreme violent paranoia. Caesar the emperor wrote because of his outburst in the way that Herod would kill his family members, he said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Just process that. Because he's just, he's just, he's taking out people that he doesn't think are on his side. And we're going to see it in this story. And a massive builder He's a manipulator. He is quintessential politician. That's also another sermon I don't have time for this morning. But he is, Jesus is born, the king of the Jews in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him which is an appropriate response to a king. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, was to be born. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, six or seven miles out of town, for thus it is written by the prophet, 
Um, this is Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem is the place because it is the city of David, the great king. Of course, his lineage will be born there. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also, because that is the appropriate response to a king. A king does not have uh, his majesty when he ascends to the throne only. Do you understand that kings are born? not made. This is why there is so much hoopla about the royal babies that are born in England because one of them one day will be king or queen. You are born a king. You are born a queen. It's not something you achieve to this child even though a child has still been born a king. When they when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him because he is a king. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him appropriate for a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream... That they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, no prophetic word yet, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there till I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there till the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled. Notice the pattern here. Which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts for, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled, notice the pattern, what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, uh, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, when Herod was dead, let me call a timeout right there. Historians date the death of Herod very precisely in four B.C. We know that Jesus was bef born before Herod died, so Jesus was born before 4 B.C. This is going to answer some of your questions. <laughs> the, the monk in the Middle Ages who established our calendar, a Christian calendar, his intent was to, to base the birth of Jesus in the year, I don't know what that sound was, zero. That's the sound of zebra. He said there was a time before Christ and there is a time after Christ. Christ is born in the year zero. 
He was close, <laughs> but like some of us, a little bit off. Sorry. If you don't laugh at my jokes, I'm going to tell more, and it's going to go longer. And so he was off by four years because he dated, he was off four years with the death of Herod and hence the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus is probably in 5 B.C. But in verse 19, when, now when Herod was dead, 4 B.C., behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, which we know from Luke's account is where Mary and Joseph had come from that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. There's a double meaning to Nazarene there. But Jesus' parents are from Nazareth. He is raised in Nazareth. The interesting fact is that Nazareth, and we really learn this by implication from Luke's account, Nazareth is a city that was settled hundred years, several hundred years before this by people from Bethlehem. And our, our tour guide said the people of Bethlehem, one of the reasons they know this is not just the history, but the people in Bethlehem carved out caves under their houses for their animals. Hence, that's where Jesus would have been born in Bethlehem, in the cave where they kept the animals. They did the same thing when they came to Nazareth. Nazareth is a, comes from a Hebrew word that means an offshoot from an olive tree. Uh, hey, Peyton, my third picture. So when we went to the top of the hill outside of Nazareth where they were going to throw Jesus down, uh, that would be in Luke 4. There's this olive tree at the top of this hill. I'm not saying it's from the time of Jesus. Well, and there's also cigarette butts around this. But anyhow, apparently people go up on the mountain to smoke. But that's not the point of the story. Stay focused with me here, people. You can't really see it very well, but there's these offshoots from the root system of the olive tree. And they named Nazareth the offshoot, in essence, of Bethlehem. They are the offshoot. But the crazy thing, and Matthew doesn't even say this in fulfillment of Scripture, but in Isaiah 11.1, 1, it says that the Messiah will come as an offshoot from the root of Jesse. You know, that's uh, Isaiah 11.1. 1. And it is allusion on several levels of his genealogy, but also that he was to come from Nazareth. And so Matthew sets out in his gospel to prove that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And he starts with his birth. That's just the start. That's the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel. The genealogies prove that he was the son of David. David. 
His supernatural birth proves that he was the Son of God. The circumstances of his birth prove that he is the Messiah because it fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. The story of redemption finds its climax in the life of Jesus. God chose him in the way he would be born, the way he would live, the way he would die, the way he would be resurrected, the way he would ascend to, the, ascend to heaven to show that he is the Messiah who has been sent by God. He is the Savior of the world. But for the Jewish writer Matthew to say to his Jewish readers, he is also the King of the Jews, what we would say today, he is the King of Kings. He is the Messiah sent by God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the King of Kings. What strikes me about all of this, which applies to us today, and I conclude with this, is we do not choose our king. The king is chosen for us. In fact, kings are born. Americans, I want you to hear this. We're used to a democracy in which we elect presidents. Kings are not elected. It is a monarchy that is passed down through a bloodline. We do not choose the king. The king has been chosen for us by God. He is the king of kings. We do not choose the Messiah that God will send. God sends that Messiah, the anointed one. We do not, we do not choose who will be the savior of the world. The savior of the world has been chosen for us. And Matthew begins the case to say what the person that God has chosen is Jesus of Nazareth. We do not have the choice whether we want him to be king or Messiah or Savior. We only have the choice of what we will do with him. He is the king of kings. He is the savior of the world. He is the Messiah who has been sent to us. And the Messiah sent by God, we will either reject him or we will believe in him. Jesus is the Savior of the world. We do not choose Him. We will either dismiss Him or we will receive Him. And I think most pertinent to Matthew is that He is the King of the Jews. He is the King of Kings. And either we will rebel against Him or we will submit to His authority. We do not choose the king. The king has been chosen for us. Newsflash, Americans. It's God who sits on the throne. And it's not a democracy that he runs. It is a monarchy. It is a theocracy. God sits on the throne. And he has sent Jesus to be the savior of the world. We will either rebel against him, we will reject him, or we will submit to him. And I will tell you the story of redemption. Our lives and our eternity is determined about what we do with the one that God 
has sent and chosen. It's not up for election. We will only decide what we will do with him. This morning, I want you to stand. And in our time of decision today, in our time of invitation, Byron and I are going to be at the front. Brother Shane's going to come and lead us in music. You have a choice. Not who's going to be Savior, who's going to be Lord, who's going to be King, who's going to be Messiah. No, that, that decision's already been made. Your choice is what you will do with Him. And my challenge to you, if you have never taken the step of faith that says, yes, I will believe. I will, I will believe in the Savior. I will receive the Anointed One. I will submit to the King of Kings. We want to give you opportunity to do that today. And I remind you that your life on this earth and your everlasting life is determined by that choice, what you will do with Jesus. Father, today we uh, pray as we enter into this time of decision that, Father, we would understand who Jesus is. And, Father, I pray through your Spirit that you would draw those to yourself. And even those of us who've made that decision maybe many years ago, that, Father, today, even in a fresh way, we would submit to the King of Kings today. And so we give you this time, and we pray it in Jesus' name.